Well, in God's good providence, in our week-by-week passing through the, the catechism, we were at Lord's Day 27 on the date when Kyle requested his profession of faith and, and baptism to be held. So we moved that text to the morning. So we're going to consider together the truth of God's Word as it is summarized in Lord's Day 27, page 35 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But first I'd like to read with you from Titus chapter 3. Now Titus is a beautifully arranged book. Very brief letter in the New Testament. Three, three chapters in the whole of the letter. At the start, very practically addressing the evangelist and minister Titus with his calling to set the church in order. Establishing elders who will be able to restrain the, the error that was tempted to rise up in the church. Chapter 2, setting forth Titus' calling to teach each member of the church, each segment of the church, the older men, the the younger men, the older women, the younger women, according to the, the wisdom and the calling that God had laid upon them. And then at the end, as he draws near to a close, the Apostle pauses and he gets back to the heart of the truth that saves us, the heart of the truth of the Gospel. That which stands at the center of all that we do and all that we are as the church, as Christians. So listen to the first eight verses of that third chapter of Titus. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For, because... We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable to men. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now looking at that summary of God's word that we find in Lord's Day 27, we come to the second Lord's Day that deals with baptism. Last time we saw that baptism is in fact a sign and a seal that both teaches us and grants assurance concerning the promises of the gospel. Today we are asked, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? And the answer is no. Only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us. 
that the blood and Spirit of Christ wash away our sins just as water washes away dirt from our bodies. But more important, He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes. Infants as well as adults are in God's covenant and are His people. They no less than adults are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the mark of the covenant, infants should be received into the Christian church and should be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we consider baptism, the first big question we need to ask is why? Why did Jesus command His church to make disciples in part by baptizing? Why did Peter preach that folks should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins? We need to ask why God commanded baptism. And then we need to ask a second question. So what? For the new believer, the, the minister asked you some questions. He placed water upon your head. And to what end? So what? What did that act mean for you? For you who were baptized as infants, just a few days old, they brought you before the church, asked your parents some questions, and then speaking the words of that old rite of baptism, the minister placed water on your head, and so what? What is the significance of that for your life, for your identity, for who you are and who you ought to be? What I'm saying is we must not simply accept baptism as something we do because we do it. We must not accept it as merely a tradition that we engage in because we engage in it. We need to ask why God has commanded this sacrament and what it means for who we are and how we live. Unless we do that, then this sacrament is merely a superstition that has no significance for us. It's only when we ask why God wants us to do this and what it now means for us that we can appropriate its benefits through faith. And that's why our forefathers wrote Lord's Day 37, that we might not simply drift along with baptism as an empty tradition in our midst, but that rather we might see that through baptism our merciful Father is imparting hope to our hearts. And that's the theme that we see this morning. Through baptism, our merciful God imparts hope to our hearts. As we consider that hope that He imparts to us, we're going to see three things about it. First of all, the source of that hope, then the certainty of that hope, and finally, the heirs of that hope. So at the start... I want you to ask yourself, what, what is the relationship between our baptism, this sacramental rite, and our hope? Last week we saw that baptism serves as a sign and a seal. By means of this sacrament, God graciously reveals the significance of His gospel promises. It's a sign. And also the certainty of those promises. It's a seal. 
But what is the relationship between that sign and seal and the hope that we hold within us? Put another way, what is the source of the hope that God reveals in baptism? Back in the Middle Ages, the church kind of got off track on that. They began pointing to baptism itself as the source of our hope. They they didn't see it as an empty tradition by any means, but rather they looked at the sacrament as something more than God intended it to be. They looked at it as something that that inherently and necessarily imparts that which it reveals. And so writing their their catechism back then and writing the, the canons of their church, which at the time was our church, they said that baptism, by baptism, all sins are forgiven, both original sins and personal sins, as well as all punishment for sins. They said that baptism is necessary for salvation and that it gives the baptized sanctifying grace, the grace of justification, and that it does that even apart from faith. Now, that, that's quotes from the official Catholic catechism describing baptism itself as part of the source of the Christian's hope. But in contrast to that, God's Word explicitly denies that baptism is the source of our hope. Our catechism reminds us well that only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Jesus alone gives us hope, and that hope is imputed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us faith. Baptism, it reveals that source. It reveals that hope. And it does so in a way even our children can grasp. It's this of which our Scripture reading this morning speaks, highlights really. Notice how in verse 3 it explicitly denies that our hope is in ourselves. We were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Whatever true hope we have, it can't rest in us. Because we're filled with sin. We're filled with uncleanness of ourselves. We deserve only God's wrath. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, He saved us. He saved us. It's God's work. It's what He has accomplished. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to His mercy, He saved us. So if we're to have hope, we need to turn away from the mirror and look to the Word. Turn away from me and look to Him. Turn away from this world and look to the cross of Christ. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He has washed us through regeneration. That means giving us New life. That's what regeneration means. He gives us new life that washes us, that cleanses us, that removes the defilement of sin. And He renews us through the Holy Spirit. Not through the sacraments. Not through the work that we do. Not through the attainments of the church. God gives us renewal through the work of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. God alone can do that. Whom He poured out on us abundantly 
through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus attained. Jesus earned. Jesus accomplished what we needed. Our hope originates in Jesus. Applied by the Holy Spirit to us. Having been justified by His grace. That we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the result. That's the goal of our hope. He graciously justifies us. In His sight we are as Righteous and as holy as Jesus was for us. It's as though we had never sinned nor been sinners. As though we had done what He did for us. That's what He has done. That's what He has accomplished. So that we might have eternal life. So that we might be confident that at the end, when we draw our last breath, we will walk through that doorway, not into the courtroom, not into the jail cell, but into the presence of our Heavenly Father who will welcome us and love us eternally. In short, brothers and sisters, our hope lies in nothing that we do, but entirely in God. It's the hope that God the Father ordained for us from the very start. The hope that Jesus attained for us by His holy life and His perfect death. The hope that the Holy Spirit applies to us, drawing us into Christ by faith. It's all of Him. And baptism shows us that powerfully. God commands baptism for His people. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for us to decide how we want to commemorate or symbolize the hope that we have. He doesn't give us options from among which we can choose. No. Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That, He says, is how you will incorporate them into the church. That is how they will be marked as Christians. Also for the children of the church. Because the promise is for us and for our children. Therefore, the sign of that promise, today even as in the time of old Israel, is applied also to them. They receive the mark that we receive. Back then it was circumcision, today it's baptism. In His command to be baptized, we are reminded the triune God is the source of our hope. And therefore, we must not look elsewhere. This world is filled with encouragements to look elsewhere for our hope. Oh, trust in your feelings. In whatever makes you feel whole or satisfied or joyful. Trust in your deeds. Just strive to be the best person you can be. Or or trust in your family. You know, you can can always trust your family. They're not going to let you down. Or or trust in your knowledge. Trust in that, that understanding that you've been given. But brothers and sisters, understand. Nothing that we do can suffice. Nothing that we do will stand. We'll always let ourselves down. Your feelings will fade over time with familiarity. Your deeds will always fall short. If not in the doing, then in the motivation. Your family will let you down. Or you'll find the skeletons in their closet that show they're far less than perfect. And your knowledge? Your knowledge is at best the the groping around in the dark of a child. What we do, what we attain, can never give us hope that lasts. Not even the physical act of baptism can give us hope. Our hope must be on Christ and on Christ alone. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the manifestation of the hope that baptism reveals to us. His work, His deeds, His gospel is what baptism displays as it shows us that that even as the water washes away the dirt from our bodies, 
so Christ washes away the sin and its defilement from our souls. And that even as the water descends upon our heads, so Christ promises that His Holy Spirit will descend upon the hearts and souls of those whom He loves. It is Jesus Christ, His atoning work, and the Holy Spirit, His sanctifying power, which baptism displays to us by the command of God our Heavenly Father. So baptism shows us that we look away from men, we look away from ourselves, and we look entirely to the triune God and Him alone to give us hope that is eternal. And we can rest in the triune God because of the certainty of our hope which God also imparts in baptism. That's our second point, the the certainty of the hope which God imparts. We considered this a bit last week, looking at the assurance of baptism's image of a bath. But our form for baptism shows us that our hope is, is even more broad than that cleansing imagery. This form for baptism that we use today, it's it's an adaptation of the form that was written in the age of the Reformation. It's a thoroughly biblical form. And it shows us that we are not baptized just into the cleansing of Christ. Jesus said, baptize them into the name. Literally, into the name. There's one God, one name. But in three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it says, when, when we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father witnesses and seals unto us that He makes an eternal covenant of grace with us. And that He adopts us for His children and heirs. And that He, therefore, will provide us with every good thing and avert all evil or turn it to our profit. So it shows us, baptism shows us that the Father has taken us for His own. And that He did it long before we were ever made. And if He is our Father, if He has received us as His own, then we have nothing to fear ever. He's sovereign over everything. And baptism into the name of the Son... The Son seals unto us that He washes us in His blood from all our sins, incorporating us into the fellowship of His death and resurrection so that we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. So in other words, it's that bath imagery. He cleanses us. He makes us pure. But not only that, He doesn't do it from afar. He incorporates us into His life and His death. So that His death on the cross is our death. And His resurrected life is our power that frees us from the chains of sin daily throughout our lives. And furthermore, baptism into the name of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit assures us by this holy sacrament that He will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ, imparting to us that which we have in Christ. Namely, the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives until we shall finally be presented without spot among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. In other words, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit promises that He will never ever leave us or forsake us. He will work in us daily to remove us from that sin that once enslaved us and to bring us more and more into the image of Christ our Savior. That is His promise. And that is what baptism shows us, assures us of. So does that mean then that that our faith is not necessary? That that God gave us that promise and so it's just going to happen? Well, no. Our baptismal form also recalls in the very next section our obligations. 
Every covenant has two parts. God gives us the promise. But then He requires of us a response. And baptism implies the need for that response. Baptism says, God has given you these amazing promises from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now, now you are called to obey God as your loving Father and King. Now you are called to trust in Jesus alone for all of your life and hope. Now you are called to love this God through the power that He gives you. Now you are called to live a life of repentance and obedience in answer to what He's done. Now we know. We know that sometimes men refuse. They reject the promises. They reject the hope. They, They turn aside from it in blindness and hatefulness. And God warns. Even as Esau rejected the covenant and earned for himself God's wrath, so shall we earn his wrath should we willfully rebel against God and become covenant breakers. But he urges us, instead receive these promises by faith, accept what I have said about you, and live according to these promises. And to enable us to do that, to empower us to that end, He gives baptism as a source of certainty. He says to you, are you baptized? Has that water descended upon your head either as an adult or even as an infant? Then God has called you His child. God has said, I sent Jesus for you. I will send the Holy Spirit upon you. I have made you mine. What greater certainty, what greater assurance could we ever desire? And how dare we doubt the promises God Himself has given? Beloved, we must not. Instead, we must receive those promises with a true, a living, an eager faith. Be assured, my friends, as real as is that water in the baptismal font. Kyle, your your shirt is probably still wet. Right? We know it's real water. You could all see the water fall upon his hair as surely as that water descended down his head and cheeks and neck. That's how certain we can be in the promises that God has given us. That's how confident we can be that those promises are for us upon whom the water came. So look upon your baptism and believe. Believe the promises God has given. Believe that they are for you. And having believed, live according to your baptism. God has said, you are my child. Now live as a child of the King. Don't live as a child of the world. Don't live as a rebel. Don't live as one who is far off. God has said, I've drawn you near. God said, I sent my Son to die for you that you might be holy. Now live as one for whom such a great price has been paid, live. As one whom God loved that much, live as one who has every reason to be filled with gratitude to God. And God has promised you, I I will give my Holy Spirit to empower you to this new life. So don't doubt that you can turn aside from that sin. Don't doubt that you're strong enough to live this life of holiness. Don't doubt that you have the ability to profess Christ no matter what the situation. You have the power, not in yourself, but in in the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. In other words, believe those promises that are just as real as that water, that are just as truly yours. 
as that sacrament came upon you. And when you fail, when you fall short, which we all do, rather than grow discouraged and just throw in the towel, look back to that water. Remember that God will never let us down. And then in faith, turn back to Him. Turn back to Him in repentance. Turn back to Him in love. But now we have one final question that we must ask. And it's the question of to whom does this hope come? To whom are these promises given? Who are the heirs according to the hope of eternal life of whom Paul writes? Well, that's the third point that we must consider. The heirs of the hope that he imparts. And here we must answer, who is it? Who is it that can read those words from Titus 3 as being written to them? Many say that this assurance, this certainty of God's promise, it belongs only to those who have reached an age of accountability and then consciously and publicly chose to entrust themselves to Christ. And thus, thus only those over, say, the age of 8 or 10 or 12 or whatever age they believe is their age of accountability, if they come forward after that point and they profess their faith and are baptized, they have the maturity to make that decision They have the maturity to commit to God. But the question obviously arises, what about children? What about that six-year-old? What's their standing before God? Especially, I mean, that's just kind of an academic question for the most part until something happens to that six-year-old or that four-year-old or that two-year-old and they die. What do we say about that child? If... If baptism and its promises are not for those who have not attained to an age of accountability, or not for any any who haven't yet reached that age, what do we say about those children? We have to say one of two things. One of three things, really. We can always say we have no idea. There's no comfort in that. And that denies the sufficiency of God's Word. So then we can say, well, those children are lost. Until they attain to that age of accountability, that age of being able to conscientiously turn to Christ, they're lost. What a terrible thing. And not something that most would ever confess. But the other thing that, the other option is is to say, well, they're innocent. Until they reach that age of accountability, the consequences of original sin, the consequences of their own sins don't really apply. But nowhere do we find that in Scripture. Scripture casts the net of the inheritance wider than our Baptistic brothers and sisters. And they're brothers and sisters. But notice what we confess in the the last answer of Lord's Day 27. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, standing in Jerusalem, speaking to the Jews speaks to them words that convict them of their sin. And they say, what shall we do that we might be saved? And what does he tell them? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. 
Now, what is that promise that is for you and for your children and for those whom God will call? He's talking about the promise of God's covenant. He's talking, he's talking to Jews. When he says the promise is to you and to your children, they know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the promise spoken of in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants, between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Those who are enfolded by this promise, the promise that comes to you and to your children after you, and now also to those afar off whom the Lord our God will call. They are called to repent of their sins, receive Christ by faith, and receive the sign and seal of His covenant by baptism. That's the new sign of the covenant. That's the new sacrament of entrance into God's people. In the Old Testament, if you were to come to Israel as a new believer, and you were a man, you would be circumcised. That was the sign and the seal, an unremovable mark that said, those promises are for you. This God is your God. All of His promises adhere to you and to your descendants after you. And so every child that you then had would receive that same mark of the covenant. The promises were given to Him and to her and to their children after them. In fact, God was so insistent on this, that he said that that mark must be given to the the male children of his covenant at eight days old. And if, he says, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So that newborn child had to be given the sign and seal of the covenant. And now... In Acts 2, Peter tells them that Jesus has has changed the sacrament of entrance with the Great Commission. No longer is it a sign and seal carried out in blood because the blood has been shed once for all on the cross. Now it is a sign and seal of washing accomplished. Now it is a sign and seal of incorporation into the triune God. Now it is baptism. And speaking to Jewish Christians, new believers who grew up in the covenant, saying the promises to you and to your children, he knows that they will apply that sign and seal also to their children. They will insist upon it. Because they don't want their children cut off from that covenant. If God doesn't want that sign and seal applied to the children of the covenant to whom the promise also comes... Surely he would have to tell them that, and nowhere do we find that. Instead, we find just the opposite. In Acts 16, we find the gospel preached first to Lydia and then to a jailer in Philippi. And both of these, when they believe, they are baptized, both they and their households, receiving the sacrament of the covenant. The sign changed, but not the essential covenant and not its recipients. Again, we read Paul's counsel in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, where he says, The children of believers are not unclean, but are holy, because they have been incorporated into the covenant through the faith of their parents. And thus, brothers and sisters, the sign comes to our children. 
It comes to them as rightful members of the covenant. Children, you were baptized at an age that you don't even recall. I asked my youngest on the way here this morning, do you remember your baptism? And he says, no. I said, but you know you were baptized. We all know that we were baptized at an early age. And even though we don't remember it, we know that it was done and we know therefore God has promised that we are heirs of the promises of the covenant. We possess the hope of Christ's gospel and we are called to fulfill the obligations implied in that covenant. And therefore, we must not regard our children, brothers and sisters, as being outside the church. We must not regard our children as being little pagans. But we must regard them as we regard one another. Sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That is what we tell them when they're little. You are a Christian and therefore you must act like a Christian. You must trust Jesus as a Christian. You must tell others about Jesus because you are a Christian. And when they come forward and they profess their faith, we praise the Lord. Not that they have become Christians but that they have attained to maturity, that they might now partake of the Lord's Supper, that they might act as mature members of the church, but they've always been members. They've always been part of the church. And now they've simply moved to Christian adulthood. Children, young people, the fact that you are members of the covenant, that has serious implications for you. It means that you must recognize the blessings you've been given. You have been given a hope of which countless multitudes in this world have never heard. You have been given a gift that is far greater than anything your parents could ever buy you. And that should have you praising God. That should have you rejoicing. If you don't already, you need to be considering the blessing that God has given you in making you a member of His covenant. And you need to embrace that blessing by faith. The hope that comes with the covenant promises doesn't mean that we're saved automatically. We must have faith. We can't just we can't just go about as though it doesn't matter how we live or what we believe. No, God wants us. He demands of us that we receive it by faith. A faith that that professes him eagerly, a faith that trusts him entirely, a faith that seeks to live for him and obey him, a faith that submits to those he sets over us. And rejoices to call others to submit to the Lord in faith. And you cannot do it. None of us can. Of ourselves, we will reject the Lord. We will live a life of rebellion. Every one of us. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. And He's promised the Holy Spirit to us. So let us pray that God would would employ the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to take hold of those promises, to live out that Christian life, and to do so with that alien power that dwells within us, trusting even for the strength to trust Him in the power of God. Beloved children, beloved people of God as a whole, we must respond to the hope of the baptism that's been given us. That means seeking God's strength to respond as He would call us to live, expressing our faith by telling others what we believe, 
and trusting that no matter what we face, no matter what we endure, our Heavenly Father has us in His hand. We are the apple of His eye and He will never, ever, ever let us go. That is the hope that we attain through baptism. That is the hope that He applies throughout our lives. And that is the hope that must lead us to praise Him. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, Your grace is greater than we can even fully comprehend. Father, we pray that You would help us to receive that grace, those promises that You imparted to us in our baptism with a living and growing faith. Thank You for the baptism we were able to witness this morning with Kyle. Father, we pray that You would use his baptism and our baptisms to strengthen our hope in You. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.